Good evening, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the Epistle of Jude. We continue with our series on the church in the midst of apostasy. The church in the midst of apostasy. All right, let's go to the text, but that's open. let's uh, look to the Lord first before we get into the Word. Father, what a joy and a privilege, an awesome privilege and responsibility it is to be able to share your Word, to be able to open it, to read it, and to have your Holy Spirit speak to us from that Word and to illuminate us as we read. We pray we might heed what we read and what we learn in keeping with your word, so we not be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. Thank you for the anointing of the Spirit of God whom you've given us to teach us, and we lean upon him now and wait for his teaching. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right, we have come now to verse 7. Well, actually, uh, verses 6 and 7, where Jude is describing the kind of sins that were done by the angels. And uh, he says in verse 5, for instance, all the men, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It's very clear then that Jude, through the leading and the moving of the Holy Spirit, is saying that the angels who sinned and the people of the men in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them were engaged in the same type of pervasive, of pervasive behavior. And because of that, judgment followed. But now the question always is asked, what type or nature of sin is Jude alluding to here? This is where we ended this morning. The next word or term in the scripture, the King James Version especially, gives an answer, I believe. It says, they went after strange flesh. In other words, the flesh of another kind. The New International Version translates the same phrase as perversion. Now what kind of sin is this? What kind of perversion is it? As I mentioned this morning, I believe the record in Genesis 19 gives us the answer. And we're not going to go through that passage right now, but I'm sure you are aware of it. Genesis 19 is very explicit here. It describes what happened when the two angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah to warn the people of the impending judgment of God. And it describes in detail the frenzied attempt of the male population of Sodom to have sexual relations with these men who actually were angels, who had taken the form of men. Now that's important. These men had taken, these angels had taken the form of a man. And the man wanted to have sexual relationships with them. I want you to see how Jude is tying in the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins of the angels that he just mentioned in verse 5. Now, if you go to Genesis 19 and verse 5, you'll read these words. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom. In other words, this was a pervasive thing. This was an action that involved the entire city. Both young and old surrounded the house. The city was a city then of those that we now call homosexual or homosexuals. So actually, the word homosexual is a neutral term. It does not really describe or say anything. That's why the term has been fostered and imposed upon a society. It's amoral. It doesn't say it's right or wrong. But we know from Scripture it is an immoral activity. Now, when it says here that they went after strange 
flesh. God calls this activity gross immorality. So the homosexual act is an act of gross immorality because it involves going after strange flesh, flesh that you're not supposed to go after. You remember in scripture, it talks about the guys who went into the Holy of Holies to, and they offered what? Strange fire. What happened to them? God killed them instantly because the strange fire meant they did something that God had forbidden them to do. And because going after strange flesh was something God had forbidden, God comes in judgment. The city had now, has now become the name for this terrible unnatural act. We call it sodomy. When you hear the term sodomy or sodomite, it's not referring necessarily to a city or a place, but an action. And the action is immoral. It's not natural. But as I said this morning, unless we get caught up only in the disgust, the emotional disgust of what is being described here, let us remember that Jude is saying that the perversiveness of the man of Sodom was similar to that of the fallen angels. And that the perversion of both serve, look at the text, as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So this is a terrible thing here. It leads to separation from God. In other words, if God judged the immorality of the man of Sodom and the fallen angels because of their corruption of truth, which in this context is described as disobedience, we can be sure that he will do the same to us today. That's Jude's point. That's the point of the apostle. Paul as well. The message then is aimed specifically at those who deliberately and consciously turn away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints, either in their teaching or the behavior. If you turn away from the truth, you can be sure that judgment will follow. That's the message. Now, it's not my purpose here to deal with all of the pros and cons surrounding the identity and nature of the fallen angels and their sin, although I will do a little bit of it. However, even at the risk of leaving much unsaid and unanswered, I must make some reference to this matter if any justice is going to be done to the passage at all. So we're going to go through this somewhat slowly. Bear in mind that Jude is reminding his readers of events they are familiar with. They have already been exposed to this truth. In other words, they knew already about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. They knew that. However, there are at least two dozen references to their sin, sin of the Sodomites and God's judgment upon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, at least two dozen. Most of the time when we study this passage, we don't look at those other references, we only look at Genesis 19 and we get all of our conclusions concerning the reason for the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah from that passage. I think that's erroneous and we'll see why in a moment. Is there anywhere in scripture where the activity of the fallen angels are described? Now we have the activities of the Sodomites. You won't come preach? <laughs> is there anywhere, but Lindsay is right, if we follow along, there could be a description. There could be, I say, and that's Genesis chapter, what is it, Lindsay? Six, Six verses one through four. Let's turn to that passage. Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, 
Now that doesn't mean that they didn't have sons, all right? But he's just describing something here. This is what we call selective revelation. When men begin to increase in number, because women also increased, right? I'm just trying to show you scripture. You have to watch out when we say we take the scripture literally. Because if we take this, what we call literary, or rather the better word is laterally, and we take it letter for letter, you get the idea that only men and, and um, um, uh, men were increasing and, and girls were being born, but that's not what it's saying. It's a focus here. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And notice the phrase, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. That's the years it took for Noah to build the ark. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. They're talking here about the offspring. Now, the problem comes with the meaning of the sons of God. This term, the sons of God, is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to angels. Only once is this term used of God's people, the sons of God, in the Old Testament. Only once. It is not until we come to the New Testament that the terms the sons of God is used as a common reference to believers who become the children of God by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, whenever the sons of God mentioned, except for one instance, it refers to angels. Now, if fallen angels are indeed referred to here, and I says if, because I'm not saying that as it's being taught here yet. If fallen angels are indeed referred to here, then Jude's description of their activity is very precise. Notice what it says. They went after strange flesh. Now, if these are angels, then the strange flesh refers to who? The daughters of men. Do you understand that? If they're referring to angels here, then the strange flesh will refer to the daughters of men. If the sins of the angels in Genesis 6-4 are the same as in Jude. In Genesis 6, God regarded this as grow, Jude, rather, Jude 6, God regarded this as gross immorality and perversion. Now the offspring, the children of this unnatural union, and it would be unnatural because if they are angels going after the women, humans, women, then they're going after strange flesh, and that's unnatural. The offspring of this unnatural union were the formed giants such as Goliath. He was nine feet tall. Now we know at least some of them were deformed because Samuel described them in 2 Samuel chapter 21 verse 20 and this is what he says. In still another battle which took place at Gath, that's where Goliath was born, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descendant from Raphar. That's the city where these, uh, these particular individuals seem to have come from. So if this is so, that these offspring were the result of fallen angels who left the former estate 
and went after human women and married them and married them then their offspring were as we says unusual to say the least now of course some object to this interpretation on the basis of Matthew chapter 22 verse 30 this is one of that's not the only reason I'll name some of them but look at this one and this is probably the most powerful one Matthew chapter 22 verse 30 this is Jesus response you remember to the Pharisees now asking Jesus if a person dies and he's married seven times and so on whose wife will she be in the resurrection and he answers in Matthew 22 verse 30 at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage notice now they will be like the angels in heaven. So it is gathered from this statement then that Jesus was teaching that, G, that angels are sexless and they cannot bear children. That's the reason why they do not marry. Now remember, what does it say of the angels in Genesis 6? They married the women. Jesus seems to be teaching here that angels do not marry. So are these really angels in this passage? So it is gathered from this statement by Jesus that he was teaching that angels are sexist and cannot bear children. It's why they do not marry. But now here is something else that might offset that to some degree. Note the text. He said Jesus is referring to angels who are still in heaven. He's not referring to fallen angels. So you see, you got to be careful here. In other words, the angels that Jesus is talking to are the angels who kept their first estate. They stayed where God told them to stay. The fallen angels are those who did not keep their first estate and did what God told them not to do. So in a sense, that criticism is sort of washed out. you understand what I'm saying? Now also, it might be too much of an inference from this passage that Jesus is talking about here uh, to say that the angels are sexless. It simply says they do not marry, they do not procreate. It doesn't say they are sexless. It simply says they don't marry or they don't procreate. That happens in the natural realm as well. We have single people who do marry and who don't procreate. Isn't that right? So we, the, what I'm trying to point out here, we cannot push too much into these sentences here to say that angels are not being referred to. Now, the point to be made here is that both Jude and Moses are referring to fallen angels, not to unfallen angels. He's referring to those who have left their first estate. They're doing things they shouldn't do. They're going beyond the boundaries of the word of God. And so therefore, we cannot say that they are similar in their behavior. Right? Are you following? Oh, are you sleeping? Now, when it says those who have left their first estate may refer either to their abode in heaven or their nature as angels. It could refer to the fact that they did something that was different from their nature or they different, they left their home. But although it is undoubtedly true that angels cannot procreate among themselves, it is also true that angels can take the form of humans as the two who were attacked by the men of Sodom. And it is also true that they can inhabit bodies of human beings as well as animals. True or false? Yeah. They inhabited pigs 
boy, if they inhabit pigs, I'm sure, you know, they ain't too particular what bodies they're going to choose. So, what I'm saying is, we, it is possible here that what is being described by both Jude and the book of Genesis is this abnormal behavior of fallen angels and the intermixture with human beings that cause this problem. Now, perhaps this is what made their behavior so grossly immoral and perverse. Not only their behavior, but also the grisly results. And that's also the reason God decided to destroy the world and its inhabitants. He said so. Listen to Peter as he puts his commentary on this. 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels that sinned, but send them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. Now in context, notice what he's doing. He's referring specifically to the fallen angels and the women whom he married and the offspring that resulted specifically, but it's generally speaking as well. He protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Notice he calls him a preacher because in Jude and in Peter, they are talking about preachers who depart from the faith. Protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's a powerful statement. That's an awesome statement, but that's the word of God. He's using what happened to the angels or what they did, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, what they did as examples of what happens to ungodly people. This is the same lesson and warning I say that Jude is giving to those who have crept secretly into leadership and teaching roles within the church. And by their godless, immoral lifestyle, in the words of Jude, they're godless men who change, notice the word, change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Savior and Lord. That's a strange thing for a preacher to do. Jude says this is a denial of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He said, saints, believers in Christ, must contend against such a lifestyle of professed preachers of the word, but especially, and in particular, they must contend against those who profess to be ministers of the gospel and living ungodly lifestyles. We cannot be passive. And he's going to bring in an example of why we shouldn't be passive. Now, I believe that this is such an important and relevant issue in our society today that we must continue to look at it because it's so vital for us to understand. And it's something that we don't seem to focus on today. So we're going to spend a few more moments this evening to look at it. But I don't want you to forget the context of Jude's warning. Let me remind you, let me stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Jude felt constrained by God to describe the character and activities of godless men who secretly slip into local churches and who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and who deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now these folks will not do it outwardly but they do it in their teachings. 
gives his first description as we saw in verse 4. He then gives us these three specific historical events of God's divine judgment upon those who committed the same basic sin as those apostate teachers to show that divine judgment is certain for all those who deliberately reject God and corrupt divine truth. Now, beloved, such apostates may get the applause and the financial favor from undeserving Christians even today. And a few might even get caught in their hypocrisy and publicly exposed. And we've seen it happen in our day. They might seem to be getting away with it, living lavishly and so on. But Jude is telling us they might get away from man, but not going to get away from God. That's his point. That's Jude's messages in this, in this section. In verse 5, it was the children of Israel. It was used as a warning. In verse 6, it was the fallen angels. And in verse 7, it was Sodom and Gomorrah. He's using these as examples to carry home the truth that when we disobey the word of God and when we do not contend for it, God will judge us. That's why Jude's use of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of the certainty of judgment is so pertinent and relevant today. You see, usually we regard the sexual immorality and perversion here as referring specifically to sodomy. And we see sodomy as the only reason for and cause of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. And this has given preachers especially Christian preachers, a basis for coming down extremely hard on homosexuals. Because we look at this and we say, see what God says? And we condemn them. And we push them aside as though they are committing sins that are completely different from the sins we commit. Because we look at it, see, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for sodomy. And that's all he judges for. Well, I'm going to show you from Scripture that that's not true. The fact that's far from being true. And while I am in no way seeking to lessen the gravity of the sin of homosexuals or sodomites, we have to show what scripture teaches here. And we're not condemning the sinner, we're condemning the sin. The Apostle Paul makes it quite clear that God's grace and God's love and God's mercy encompasses all sinners, no matter what the sin is. This is where the answer to the young man comes in. Paul makes it clear that the blood of Christ can wash away any sin, all sin. Listen to these glorious words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters nor adulterers I want you to see now that Paul is in no way putting homosexuality or sodomy in a category on its own he's putting in with the sins of all of us neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. A greedy person in God's sight is just as guilty as a homosexual. So don't think you're any better off or free of God's judgment. And this is what some of you were, Paul says. 
but you were what? Washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What a glorious message that is. So get it out of your mind that the sodomite, the homosexual, is doing some sin that is not as great as yours. Paul is saying that anyone, regardless of the type of sin he or she's involved in as a way of life, can be washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ if that person calls upon the name of Christ for salvation. They can be cleansed. Friends, this is the core of the gospel. This is the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sin, all of our sin. There's no sin that can leave a stain that's too hard for the blood of Jesus Christ to wash. If it's one thing we can be sure of in this world of uncertainties in which we live, it is there's still power in the blood. Amen? There's still power in the blood. But now, let's get back to the text itself. I believe that it is a misrepresentation of the Bible as a whole to say that sodomy, which society has relabeled homosexual, or homosexuality, I believe it's a misinterpretation of the scriptures to say that this was the only cause for God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now while this sin was certainly a reason and a major one for God's judgment, it was most, it was most certainly not the only reason. Now we're going to look at some of those reasons and it's going to shock some of you. In fact, it's going to make some of you angry. Because you're going to wonder why they put it in the Bible. So why don't you get out your Bible, please? And follow along. First, Genesis 18 and 19. This is where the events, this judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is recorded. Now in verse 20 of chapter 18, we have the charge against the cities repeated by God to Abraham. This is what God says to Abraham in verse 20 of Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you notice that? The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Someone, someone's were outcrying against what was happening. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will come down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, we, 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 we miss this sometime. There's an outcry against this city and what was going on. Somebody was making a case against the city to God. That word outcry is a legal word for putting in a charge. In the Hebrew. I've always wondered who it was that ended that plea or complaint against Sodom and Gomorrah to God. Somebody did it. That's what it says. This is a legal complaint put toward God. And there's only one person I can think of. Who do you think of? Lot. Because the book of Hebrews says that he was a righteous man and he was grieved day in and day out. And I believe although he was passive, he was praying. The scripture says, Lord, Lot was vexed in his soul day in and day out because of the wickedness he witnessed. And God says somebody has placed a petition before him. I think it was Lot. Now, I don't have scripture for that, but I believe it was him because he was a just man. But then God goes down to investigate the detectives. He sends out his detectives, two of them. Scholars believe that one was Michael, 
and the other was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. If you read Genesis 19, you'll have the same picture, but we won't get Judges 19 is another horrible story, but we won't go into that tonight. The same kind of a thing happened. They were angels. But then God gives his verdict now of the situation in chapter 19 of Genesis and verses 12 and 13. Listen to what God says. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? See, this is why I believe that this outcry, this petition came from Lot. Of course, Abraham mentioned it, but I believe that God heard his cry. The angel said, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Now notice the execution of the sentence in chapter 20, in verses 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. I mean, this was a complete and absolute wipeout. Now, if I were to ask you, why did God destroy these cities? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? Because of sodomy. That's what you would be. Wouldn't you? That's what your answer would be. But does God say that? Now, having read the book of Jude only, you probably would say, yes, he did say it. And he says it very clearly in verse 7 that we read. You will say that nothing can be plainer than this. These people were destroyed because of their sexual perversions, period. Well, look with me for a moment now at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14. The prophet is speaking the word of the Lord to the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the preachers. Notice what he says. Now this is the word of God. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, among the preachers of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. Who are they talking about? The preachers. God says it's horrible what the preachers are doing. They commit adultery and they live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wicked. Do you see that? No one is turning from the wickedness. Why? Because the preachers were doing the same thing. Notice carefully now. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Did you see that? Now notice, nothing is said in this context about sodomy or homosexuality. Yet these religious leaders were like Sodom and Gomorrah as far as God was concerned. What were they doing? Well, they said they were committing adultery and they were living a lie. But it doesn't say anything about homosexuality or sodomy. They commit adultery and live a lie. Now let me ask you something. Is that not true today? How many leading religious men have been found guilty of this very thing? Committing adultery and covering it up with lies. I wonder how many more have not been caught yet. 
Now remember, what is being spoken about here is a lifestyle, a pattern of life. This is not a one-time fall into sin that is confessed and repented of. That's not what he's talking about. Because if that is true, we, ain't got no, we would not open each other around here. Because all of us sin. Right? We fall, but we confess and we turn away. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a lifestyle. This is a secret, sinful way of life that is deliberately and consistently engaged in. Outside, in the public, it's a whole different picture. The prophets of Israel were guilty of this kind of life. And so were the religious leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the point that Jeremiah is making. Again, I've always wondered if Lot was included in that bunch. I don't know. But secondly, they said, they strengthened the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. What an indictment that is, even for us today. God says that the preachers of Jerusalem were like Sodom and Gomorrah because they contributed to the evildoers by not doing anything to bring them to repentance. And in fact, they were guilty of the same offenses. They refused to change their lifestyle so they could not legitimately speak out and confront the evils of the day. Their own lifestyle bridled their lips. The immoral lifestyle and passivity in condemning sin actually contributed to the evil and corruption of the city. Sodomy was present and was practice. But the religious leaders said and did nothing, including Lot. He might have prayed, but he didn't say anything. How could they? They themselves were involved in secret sexual immorality. This too, the Bible says, contributed to the reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was not only the evil behavior of the Sodomites, it was also because of the evil behavior of the religious leaders of the people of the city. God actually blames the religious leaders for allowing the evil to go on. Do you see it? Do you see it? He blames the preachers for all of the immorality. Now, just one more, and then we'll let you go home and moan over this. Jeremiah was not the only prophet who made this point. Turn quickly with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. This time, verses 49 and 50. And now we'll see another reason why God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49-50. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. This is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, the cities around, were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So if I were to ask you now, what was the reason for God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, what would your answer be? Don't be afraid to answer. Look at it. Nothing is said specifically about sodomy or homosexuality, or those included. What is mentioned are the, are the, are the sins in Sodom and the very reason why God destroyed it. Notice, therefore I did away with them. Notice the therefore. The therefore is there to give us the reason. And what were the reasons mentioned? Number one, arrogance. Number two, too much affluence, too rich. Driving around in 
You could fill in the word. Arrogance, too much affluence, and lack of social concern for the poor. This means then that the people of Sodom were completely void of social conscience. They did not become involved in help, helping those in need, even though they were overfed themselves. They had all they needed, but they didn't help. They were arrogant. It didn't bother them one iota. God says, this was detestable before me. Therefore, I did away with them. Do you see it? That's the reason given. Now it's not until we get to Jude 7 that God specifically names sexual immorality and perversion as reasons for punishing Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you had read all through the Old Testament, what you would get is the reason for destroying Sodom and Gomorrah was because of how the preachers were living. Committing sins themselves having an affluent life and not helping the poor and they were arrogant and because of this he destroyed the city that's what the text says significance then of all of this is that we must see that the reason why open immorality and other sexual perversion exists in a society is because the righteous do not live righteously nor, that, nor do they speak out about unrighteousness. Let not speak out about it. So when you see all of the immorality and every all of the stuff that's going around, ask how have you spoken out about it? Have you written? Have you been involved in any kind of activity to see if you could help? That's what this text is saying. Here's the point. If we don't do those things, we are not contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The principle as emerges is clear then. And listen carefully, this is the lesson. Immorality flourishes in a society where sin is allowed to go unchecked by the righteous or where the professed righteous is not living righteously. Let me read that again. Repeat it. Immorality flourishes in a society where sin is allowed to go unchecked by the righteous and where the professed righteous is not living righteously. God is saying in these texts then that Christian leaders must take the lead and blame in this area. Now that's a hard pill to swallow. And Lot is the perfect illustration of this principle. He was a righteous man. He was even vexed. You know, if Lot was living today, he would be on the tribune and say, what you vex about? I was vexed about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. He was vexed in his soul about the conditions in Sodom. But there's no evidence that he ever spoke out against the evil. In fact, the only time he ever tried to make an effort to help his own family, the scripture says that when he spoke to them, he appeared to them as one who mocked. They didn't accept it. Didn't believe him. They thought he was just funning. You've got to be kidding. Had no credibility. Again, I always ask, I wonder if they knew something about Lord we didn't. They probably did. Lord's own personal life. Or was it simply because that he had remained silent so long? And when he finally called Wolf, the boy looked up and laughed. There ain't no wolf. Did he live to enjoy the fat of the land of Sodom? Remember, that's one reason why he chose it. Was he overfed? And arrogant? I close with this question.
how many of God's people, including pastors, preachers, as well as believers, are so living of the fat of the world that it has paralyzed and neutralized our spiritual impact and credibility in the world. That's the kind of thing that caused God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the message of the book of Jude so far. We'll pick this up next time, Lord willing. Let's close with a word of prayer. Take a few moments to reflect upon what God has said in his word. These are strong words of challenge to us. Are we living of the fat of the land and being arrogant and uncaring towards those in need? Are we saying one thing but living another? Are we in any way helping to encourage and support those who are deliberately, purposely distorting the truth of God's word for their own benefit? We answer yes to any of these questions, then we are not contending for the faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. We need to ask God to forgive us. Judgment begins at the house of God. We need to ask God to forgive us. We need to repent and then ask Him to give us the courage and the boldness to speak out against immorality in our community to seek to help those who are in need, the poor. And not to be arrogant because we are blessed when others are not. Let's pray that God will not allow us to be like Lot although he was a righteous man. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that it will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for you having its go forth this evening. And all of God's people said, Amen.